beginning to look a lot like Christmas, isn't it? Everywhere you go. It's nice to see the sun sparkling off the fresh snow this morning. I have a sister that lives in California and one that lives in Oklahoma, and they are both jealous of us, the fact that we have so snow. That jealousy disappears about the time we get to that 100-inch range, and, and uh, then the jealousy turns the other way. But this is certainly a beautiful day, and I'm glad we can worship the Lord today. Last week, I started not necessarily a series, but kind of a theme. I wanted to, to take some of the music of Christmas, some of the songs that we know so well, and, and kind of incorporate them into the message of Christmas and what makes it so special for all of us. And, and uh, my mother um, was one of those that wherever snow fell for the first time in the season, anywhere in the world, it was time to start putting on Christmas music. Any of you like that? A few of you? Some of you? So we had a lot of Halloweens with Christmas music on because it was snowing somewhere. Uh, as a result of that, many of my memories, especially my childhood memories, are, are wrapped up in some of the, the old Christmas music that uh, we hear. In fact, uh, there's nothing that can transport me back to some very memorable Christmases more than music can. Or do any of you experience the same thing? It's just something wonderful about that. Uh, and... Uh, so today I want to kind of continue on and with the title of the message is The Reason to Sing, The Reason to Sing. And I'm going to ask if you would take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. And I want to read verses 2 through 7. And then we're going to tell a little story about the context of what brought this passage of Scripture to be and how that, that fits in with some of the traditions of Christmas and our music. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will become fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there shall be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your presence. We've come to church today to be with you. We enjoy all of the other trimmings that come with being with friends and, and uh, having opportunity to interact one with another and to hear what's happening in each other's life. But Father, the reason we come is we want to be with you. And so I pray that you would begin to display your presence among us through your word in a way that will nourish us and encourage us, especially at this Christmas season of the year. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. The reason to sing. Within this passage of Scripture in Isaiah, there's a great sense of history that leads us to this. 
And if you have your bulletin on the back, there's kind of a quick outline of what we're going to be talking about. The three points that I want to bring up today are the darkness, the light, and the song. And as we begin to talk about the darkness, we understand and we begin to recognize. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness or unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness or unrighteousness. We live in a time of darkness here. In fact, much as what I'm going to begin to talk to you about the context of this passage of Scripture, you're going to begin to see that there are amazing parallels with the way that we live even in our country and our world today. And this verse begins to tell us in Romans that there is an aspect of God displaying his wrath for wickedness all over our world. He has an anger, and it's an unabated anger at godlessness. And because we live in a day and a time where there are so many people that believe that we live in this period of grace, which we do, that somehow God just excuses godlessness, or he just excuses evil, or he's turning his back on it, would be an incorrect interpretation of what is happening within our world today or how God views unrighteousness. Many times we come to an understanding that as we look at other people in relationship to ourselves, our tendency is to be very lenient with ourselves and very hard on others as it relates to the sins or the things that we have allowed in our lives versus what we believe other people should have. We're not so quick to connect the dots in our own life. We're not so quick to see the things that we do and the say that that we do and say that displeases the Lord in a very harsh light within our own lives. Because we always have this tendency to see in our lives things as better than they really are. In verse 18 of Romans it said that this wickedness suppresses the truth. Now all of us are spin doctors. Every one of us is predisposed to seeing my life in the best possible light. I've seen this clearly in my own life and recognized it as I talk to others that it's amazing how easy I can be on myself when I have failed the Lord and I come up with all of the excuses. Well, Lord, you know this was going on, this and this. And as a result of that, please don't be too harsh with me because I failed you because I've had great reasons. Have any of you ever had a conversation like that with God? Begin to view yourself in that light? And yet as we begin to get down in the word and, 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 and his word begins to work on us, what happens is his truth hunts us down and it begins to corner us. And when he does, when we begin to see ourselves in light of, of his holiness and his word and his righteousness, we, we dodge and we distort and we evade and we mislead and we blame somebody else or we lie. All of this is suppressing the truth. And as we stand in the presence of the Lord, we suddenly come to the recognition, Lord, I need a rescuer. I'm the one that needs your work in my life. What amazes me about our Savior is the one who knows all the details about us, all of the things that we don't want anybody else to know, all of the things that we work so hard at hiding. He knows all of those details. And he loves us anyway. What an amazing Savior that pursues us. 
someone who comes after us and is pure enough to remove our sin and guilt from us and strong enough to personally take the hell that we deserve and absolve that and absorb it himself so that we can have the righteousness that he brings to us. And then one who's so powerful that as the Savior changes us from the inside out. And when we begin to lay hold of that reality, we begin to consider the character of our Savior. And we begin to see this even in this passage that we read in, in Isaiah. The character of Jesus Christ was displayed through a prophetic word of Isaiah 700 years before Jesus ever arrived on earth. And I want to spend a few minutes this morning with Isaiah talking about Christmas. You really can't get chapter 9 of Isaiah without having the context of chapter 7 and 8 together in this. And Let me just give a little bit of what was happening here. Isaiah was watching his nation erode before his eyes. He was watching the people of God under the leadership of King Ahaz. Now Ahaz, at this particular time in his life, was a 20-something-year-old king. I mean, he's living the dream. He's a young man that gets to tell everybody what to do, and he begins to lead people in, in ways that they had to follow. And what was happening in this was that his country, Judah, was faced with a national crisis. Judah was threatened in two ways. Number one, internally, there was a moral and spiritual rot that was corrupting God's people. Externally, there was the impending attack from multiple enemy armies that were creating widespread panic among the people. And it was into this setting that Isaiah was sent by God in a desperate hour to come and approach Ahaz to begin to speak to him about some of the unspeakable and unbreakable promises from on high that if he would just listen and just obey and follow God, what God would do for him and his country. In fact, if you go back to chapter 7 of, of Isaiah, you, you begin to read and at the end of 7, verse, verse, at the end of chapter 7, ver, the end of verse 9 through verse 13, Isaiah is speaking to him and he says to Ahaz, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now, when I read this, I instantly thought of my mom and dad in a conversation they would have with me. Does that not sound like something a mom and dad would say to you? Listen, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you'll not stand for anything. I can just picture an old prophet looking at this young king, shaking his finger and going, listen, this is your moment. He goes on to tell him, and again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahab, Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Isaiah then looks at him and said, Will you try the patience of my God also? So here this prophet is sent to address this 20-something-year-old king who is leading a country that in his dire needs morally, uh, internally, and externally, he's in deep trouble. And he points, comes to him, and he points away, and he says, listen, if you will just seek God, God will lead you out. And the young man looked at him and said, that is not something that interests me whatsoever. I've often wondered... As we look back at our lives, how many of you have had advice that you did not take that looking back you said, I wish I could do that over again? Some of the greatest regrets in my life, the things that I either am most ashamed of or embarrassed of, 
are things that people with more wisdom than I advise me on, but I wanted to do it my way. Some of you teenagers have looked at your mom and dad and said, I want to live my life regardless of the advice they've given you. And we see right here in Scripture that there is an evilness in our heart that always wants to suppress the truth. And in the context of this particular passage, the prophet begins to speak to the king, and the king completely ignores everything that God has to say. And in fact, not only could he not bring himself to trust the Lord, he actually turned and went the other way, and it says that Ahaz sent messengers to the kings that were oppressing him, the king of Assyria, and he swore loyalty to the enemy. It wasn't that I'm not going to just serve God. I'm not even going to come close. I'm going to go and run with the enemy. And to encourage the king of Assyria even further, he goes into the temple and takes the gold and silver things that were consecrated unto the Lord. And these, this consecration process was an amazing thing. I mean, it was precious. And he takes the things that are consecrated to the Lord and he gives them to the enemy as gifts. And then he adopted the worship of the Assyrian gods. And this decision of Ahaz ultimately led to Jerusalem being captured by Assyria led them to places where their people were impoverished and they were all enslaved. And by the time you get out of chapter 7 and, and through chapter 8 and you get to verse 9, at the beginning of verse 9 it talks about this. And in, in, past, in the past or in former times, this time of darkness, this is what it was talking about when the leader of God's people turned his back on God and led his people into darkness. And it was all brought about by faulty leadership and a failure to trust God by his unfortunate alliances with Assyria. And so the sun began to set on the people of God, the people of Judah. It's put as Romans 1 puts it, Ahaz and all who followed him suppressed the truth so the wrath of God would be revealed against their ungodliness and unrighteousness. If you move from that chapter 7, you get into chapter 8, which is then... The, the fulfillment of what happens when one turns their back on God. There are natural consequences that come as a result of telling God he does not know what he's talking about. Many of us have experienced those things in our life. I trust that as we come through that and recognize him as Savior, that he begins to alleviate the pain of some of those things. But there are those that are living in the consequences of wanting to do your own thing. And this was an entire nation that was living in darkness. <clears throat> it says that God handed them over to their sin and to their enemies. Already the northern part of Israel had felt the lash of this Assyrian war machine taking them over and it had become increasingly apparent that the godless plans of Ahaz were failing and people began to turn because they hadn't been led in a proper way. The spiritual hunger within them began to turn in some very distorted ways and they began to seek superstition and occult and, and witchcraft to try to find something because how many of you know we are spiritual people and we either let the one true God fill us or we will look for other things that distort what God is doing. So desperate were they to find a reason to hope. In fact, Ahaz went so far down the wrong trail that he even sacrificed his own son as an offering to a despicable false God. I want you to recognize today that if you choose to turn your back on the things of God, that you will suffer and face the wrath of God. 
But if you walk in obedience, that you will enjoy the benefits of the protection of a God that will do anything to win your heart. But the choice will be yours. And this leader led his people to a place where they were defeated resoundingly, captured, hope seemed gone. It was during this age that we are warned of a wrath yet to come if we turn our back on God. But in the middle of this, in the middle of the darkest night, something happens to Isaiah that brings hope. And it leads us to our second point, that in the middle of darkness, God brings light. In fact, between chapters 8 and chapter 9, right in the middle of describing the people of Judah, what they can expect as a result of their rebellion against God, the Holy Spirit began to descend upon this prophet of God and unlocked his mind to begin to see something that was to come and kind of fast-forwards him in his mind and suddenly the prophet sees a future that God will bring and he contrasts that against the present gloom that Judah is facing. And this promise of God is so fantastic and it is so beautiful that when you read it in the context you can hardly contain your joy and you can barely keep from tears because that's what God does in the middle of darkness is brings hope and instead of darkness and doom that they were facing in the present time Isaiah says in verse 2 the people that are walking in darkness have seen a great light of those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. As I was looking at that this week, I was sharing with Cindy, I said I, I couldn't get away from the wording of this, that not only does God bring a light into darkness, he's described it to us as almost as if the sun is rising, it is dawning. So powerful is the light of the presence of Jesus that darkness has to flee, cannot be in his presence because it dawns among us. So great is his presence. And instead of the fears and the tears of, of the struggling small nation, Isaiah thanks God in verse 3 when he says this, In my prophetic eyes I have seen you have enlarged the nation and have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. And then he rewords this for those that may understand it in different ways. He said, as men rejoice when dividing their plunder. In other words, this is a victory that's coming. For those of you who've worked so hard, you bring in a great harvest, there's rejoicing. For those of you that are warriors, when you've won a battle and you're splitting up all of the plunder, there's great rejoicing. And he says, I'm seeing this prophetically. I'm seeing this in the middle of the darkness. Instead of the bondages, hundreds of thousands have been taken prisoners by the war and the invading forces. Isaiah describes prophetically a day when he said, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. In other words, I know right now you are a people that have been led astray by your sin, but there's coming a day when Jesus is going to break the oppressing around you and he's going to set you free. And they'll be able to stand as free people without the yoke of bondage. These people who have been in a state of almost constant war, Isaiah sees the end of the war when he says this, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. In other words, all of those instruments of war, the boots that you've had to wear, all the bloody garments from battle, you're going to roll them up and they will be used to provide heat for you because you won't need them anymore because there's a king that will come and fight on your behalf. And so right in the middle 
of the pronouncement of God's much-deserved wrath with wars and rumors of wars swirling Judah, Judah. Israel describes, or Isaiah describes the reversal because light is going to come into their darkness. The fears and futility, the bondage and the guilt will all be taken away. Joy in God will overtake those who once resisted and rebelled against God. And the complete victory over every enemy will come for a people who deserved the worst from a perfectly holy God. But he is gracious. And we look at this and say, who is this wonderful hero of heaven? Who comes and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves? How will I know how to find him? Isaiah tells us. And we read his description of the character of the Savior when he says this. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And then I love this sense. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. How many, I, I, I picture a God who's not hesitant to want to save. Sometimes we feel like we have to talk him into it and, and this gives the view of God waiting, anticipating. I've got great zeal. I can't wait to accomplish this. Now, we understand that the coming of Jesus as a baby that is represented for us at Christmas was not an easy thing for God to do, but I want you to understand this morning that his love for you, which causes Christmas to be a celebration, is because of his zeal to win us back. His zeal will accomplish this. And he begins to outline some character traits of God that are really important to us and he titles them such as this number one wonderful counselor literally this is wonder of a counselor the word wonderful means marvelous extraordinary beyond the normal capacity to perform in other words the counsel of our God will transcend all human wisdom and he doesn't need or want my counsel to help him out I had a call this week as I was in the middle of kind of writing this, and in, in, the person was just saying, hey, pastor, can you pray with me and my family? We have an enormous decision that's coming up, and we, we really just don't know what to do. And I said, you don't want to know what? I love the fact that we have a wonderful counselor who sees things that we do not see, whose view is above all and knows exactly where he wants to lead us and where he wants to guide us, and he's just waiting for us to ask him so that he can reveal it to us. How many of you today are in a place where you say, I need a wonderful counselor to guide and direct? Yes, there's hands all over, and we're going to be praying for you in just a few minutes. The first character nature that is described is wonderful counselor, the one who can impart wisdom and experience in order to lead us from darkness and lead us out of confusion into the light of his safety and his presence. Romans 11.34 reminds us, of his judgments and that his ways are unsearchably deep when he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Now, I will admit that I have tried to be his counselor on occasion. I have made suggestions. I continue to do so. Say, Lord, I don't know if you've considered this, but here's a way that we can all win if you'll. And in the middle of that, God reminds us, none of us can be his counselor. 
because he knows exactly what needs to be done in your life, in your family, in your job, in your home. He knows exactly. And he can't wait to be your wonderful counselor. He moves on from that to describe mighty God. Literally, this is the heroic, strong, invincible God. The child is God's son, the second person of the Trinity who possesses all the power of the Godhead. He is omnipotent, nothing that he cannot do, nothing that he cannot accomplish. He says he's our mighty God. Let me tell you what he's done. He's defeated all of our enemies. He has defeated death. He's defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated the grave. And finally, he defeated hell. Jesus Christ is our God who has come to defeat all of our enemies that we might walk in the joy of his victory. He is a king that is so powerful. Listen to me. He is so powerful that he has absorbed all the evil thrown at him from all of history and still had the power to overcome it for you and for me. Nothing can stop our God. And since he is our God, our mighty God, he deserves our reverence. He deserves our faith. He deserves our love, our unconditional obedience. He deserves our service. He deserves our worship. To reject Jesus Christ is to reject God, and to reject God is to reject life itself. There's no life without him. And in this frustrating world, when I am prone to be weak and tired, I need a king who will be awake all night while I recuperate and sleep. A champion who's strong enough to keep his word and a savior mighty enough to break the power of sin in my life so that I can call him wonderful counselor, mighty God, and I can call him everlasting father. Isaiah 40, 28 says, do you not know? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. You see, because God is eternal, what he provides extends for us beyond just this life and into eternity. Because he's eternal, all of his promises extend from generation to generation to generation. Because he's eternal, what he has given to us will remain for everlasting. You see, God has no beginning and no end. Man has a beginning, but we have no end. The moment that you were conceived and your soul came into existence, it was going to live forever. And the choice that you have is where will your soul spend eternity? Will you heed the advice of the coming king and follow him and spend eternity with him? Or will you turn your back on him and suffer the consequences of his wrath? But your soul will live forever. I love the fact that when you talk about everlasting father, another word for this in one of the translations was my forever father. My forever father. When you mingle that title with the two previous ones, you realize that the effective plans of my wonderful counselor will always have my best interest as its goals. The power to accomplish those plans will be tempered to carry me along in a deep loving involvement in my life from a forever father that brings us to the fact that he is also known to us today as the prince of peace. Peace can mean different things to different people. For those of you who may be young mothers, 
who never have a moment of quiet in your house, if I were to ask you, what does peace look like to you? It might be five minutes without kids yelling, Mom. For those of you that may come from households where... <laughs> that, that could not have been timed any more perfect. For those of you that come from households where the way that you express yourself to each other is with high volume, peace in your mind might be, I just want my family not to yell at each other today. If we could just get by without yelling, oh, how marvelous would that peace be? When we look at the passage of Scripture that talks about the Prince of Peace, it meant far more than just a temporary peace for quiet and, and perhaps a peace for a lack of, of conflict. But you see, the Jewish people that read this would understand that this peace is shalom peace. Because to them, it was true peace, and it was nothing whatsoever to do with outside situations. It was the, it was the presence of the one who is the Prince of Peace living within us that regardless of the circumstances of our life, my peace is not dependent upon the noise around me or upon the attitude of those around me. My peace is dependent upon the one who has taken up residence on the throne of my life. Shalom, peace. He's the Prince of Peace. And as a result of that, it tells us in Isaiah 32, 17 that the fruit of righteousness will be peace. In other words, the more I strive to be like him, the results of that will be this deep-seated peace within my life. It will be reflected in the quietness and the confidence that I have in God because of who he is. And he provides then a peace for me that is a peace with God, which is a spiritual peace. And if you're here today and you do not know that spiritual peace, in just a few moments I'm going to give you an opportunity to meet Jesus. It also brings us a peace of God, which is an emotional peace. And then it brings us to a peace with others, which is a relational peace. And so we see that out of these chapters of 7 and 8, there was a great darkness. And God began to speak to Isaiah in a prophetic word and spoke to him of a great light, which leads us to thirdly the song. In the summer of 1741... A 56-year-old composer was suffering from poor health following a stroke that he had had. He was also facing considerable financial difficulty, and he was at a low point in his physical life and in his musical career. Two things happened. One of them was a friend of his by the name of Charles Jennings gave him some lyrics or some, some words and asked if he could begin to put them to music, and they were all scriptural-based. The second thing that happened was a charitable music society from Ireland could not find anybody else, and so they approached him and they asked, could you maybe put something together that we could use as a benefit concert? George Frederick Handel found new life. Handel started working on August the 22nd. Reports are that he barely left his room or ate anything during this time. In fact, one day his waiter brought him a tray of food and Rather than knocking on the door, just opened and came walking in, and he found Handel with his eyes red from crying and tears streaming down his face. And the server said, is everything okay? And he says, I think I did see all of heaven before me. In fact, I think I've even seen the great God himself. He had just finished writing a movement that we know today as the Hallelujah Chorus. It took Handel 24 days to complete Messiah. Later when he was asked 
what he felt like when he was writing this. He used the words of John the Revelator when he said, whether I was in the body or out of body, I don't know. It came so clearly and smoothly that he didn't know whether it was a spiritual experience while he was writing it. At its premier, at its premier performance on April the 13th, 1742, Messiah, at a benefit concert, raised enough money to pay the debt in full of 142 men and freed them from debtor's prison. Handel conducted more than 30 performances of Messiah. Many of these concerts were benefits for hospitals and orphans or men in debtor's prison. Thousands of dollars were raised from his performances and raised nearly all of it was given to charities where that led one biographer to note, Messiah has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan more than any other single musical production in this or any other country. Another wrote, perhaps the works of no other composer have so largely contributed to the relief of human suffering. This work has had a great spiritual impact on the lives of its listener. One writer has stated, Messiah's music and message has probably done more to convince thousands of mankind that there is a God about us than any theological work ever written. I find it interesting that the primary reason for writing this was to release people from debtor's prison, to pay their debt in full. Does that not sound like what the word of God continues to do today? One of the songs that were written that was given to him was words from Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7, which was our text. For those of you that love that kind of music, I would encourage you to listen to the entirety of Messiah. But there was one song that was rewritten a few years ago, came out under the title of The New Messiah, and it's sung by B.B. and C.C. Winans, and I want to play a couple of minutes of their version of Unto Us a Child is Born. Would you close your eyes and just listen? A son is given 
Isaiah saw him coming. 700 years before Jesus arrived, Isaiah, with a prophetic vision, saw all of this to give hope to a people that was in darkness. He saw Jesus as the wonderful counselor who came in wisdom and with purpose, came with a perfect plan. He asked that we would follow him as a mighty God and in following him that he would be allowed to accomplish his purposes within our life. The devil threw everything he had at Jesus and he could not thwart God's plan through Christ. Today we are invited to hide behind him as the everlasting father. He loves us endlessly and so enjoy being in his presence. And as the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we were still his enemies. While we were still in our sin, while we were still in the darkness, his light dawned that we might enjoy it. Would you stand with me, please, this morning? Isaiah begins to outline the character and the nature of God and very, very quickly in four names that I find today probably are names that each of us in different ways may need to tap into the character of those things. So I'd ask today, how many of you need a wonderful counselor? I'd like to pray for you today. Just, I need a counselor. One that knows more than I do across this room. So Father, first of all, we come as Isaiah saw in this prophetic vision that you laid upon him, that you would be a God that would lead us and guide us in ways that you knew where you were going when we did not. And across this room, there were hands raised of people that need to know you today as wonderful counselor. So Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them very clearly and very distinctly where you would have them to go, what you would have them to do, how you would have them to respond to the things that they are to say or the things that they are not to say. You are the wonderful counselor. And so we lean upon you today, the all-knowing God, that you would provide that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. He's also known as the mighty God. As mighty God, he also comes to us as Savior. And if you're here today and you find that you are living more in the wrath and the consequences of your life than the joy of the benefits of it, then perhaps today you'd raise your hand and say, I need to know him as mighty God today. I would like to pray with you. Yes, I agree with you. Are there others? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Father, we stand before you today recognizing that you are a drawing God. You draw us, you pursue us and draw us with your love. And so today, I pray that those that responded, that need you today as mighty God, that you would be the Savior and the forgiver and that you would plant within them a brand new hope. Oh God, today, because you have come and have changed everything, so as mighty God, today we lean on you as the forgiver and the Savior. Oh God, he's also known as the everlasting father. As I think of father, I, I think of times that there's moments when I just simply love to run into my dad's arms and there's something about the hug of a father. How many of you just need the comfort of an eternal parent today? Just need the love of God. 
So Father, you are the everlasting Father, the one that we hide behind when we are afraid, the one that we run to when we need comfort. And today there are hands all across this room that just simply need to know you as the lover of their soul, the forever Father. We are not orphaned. We have a Father. And I pray that your love would be shed abroad in our heart endlessly as we enjoy being in your presence. And we thank you for that character, oh God. And lastly, the Prince of Peace. Maybe there's no gift that is mentioned outside of the ability to pay for something more than I just want peace. For those of you that needed to know him as mighty God today, I pray that right now that there would be the instantaneous deposit of the peace that he gives you that surpasses your ability to understand that in the very decision that you made to call on him as Savior, he gives to you a peace that you are now a child of God. And for those of us that are children of God and we're working our way through this life, he speaks to us and he says, what I've got for you is the shalom of my presence. It indwells you and regardless of what takes place around you, there is a peace that comes because you know me and because I know the end of the story and we win. And in that knowledge, peace is deposited. How many of you need that today? Yes. So Lord, you see our hands. As Isaiah saw prophetically and began to describe, so today we ask that you would give to us the shalom, peace of God, and set up your throne in our hearts that from us, O oh God, others might come to know that peace that surpasses all understanding. Father, there are those today that have received some really rough medical news, but that does not rob us of the shalom, peace. There are others that have receive some really difficult financial news, but that does not rob us of the shalom peace. Others, oh God, are in circumstances that are outside of their control, but the shalom of God resides within us through your presence. May it hold us, I ask. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I'm going to invite our altar workers if they would please come. Some of you that raised your hand today and that we prayed for, I'm going to invite you to come and join with others who are here that they could begin to pray with you. Maybe you're just in a place where you said, I need some prayer support in what I'm going through, and I need somebody to join with me in that. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come as I dismiss. But friends, today, I give you the world's finest and greatest king, the king to end all kings, whose kingdom and peace will never stop expanding. I give you the rescuer that we all need. I give you the leader that we all long for. And I give you the answer to your heart's most hearty questions. I give you Jesus. For unto us, a son is born. Hallelujah. Lord, deposit this message in our heart. As through wickedness, a king led his people, your people, into darkness. Through grace, you deposited into the prophet Isaiah 700 years before it happened that a light will be coming. And today we rejoice because we get to hear the song of rejoicing that comes from this passage. And so now do your work within us so that we can be the light of the world everywhere we go. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. I invite you to come. For those, those of you that must go, have a great week in the Lord. God bless you.